There are two major sexual events or strategies that a male can undertake. They can overlap and both be successful within the same individual. That and makes what a lot of sense. Means is that there was likely a push for both strategies to develop within men simultaneously. Yeah. And this leads to my hypothesis that the average man has a raider sexuality and a homesteader sexuality. Mm. And, and so the things that turn them on most when they do with their long-term partner may be actually entirely divorced from the things that turn them on most when what would activate our raider sexuality most within the modern world would be pornography. These are women that you have no emotional connection to, you see as entirely disposable. This can cause a lot of problems if a man, when he is young, when he's learning what his sexuality is, he begins to think that his sexuality is only comprised of the type of pornography that he's consuming. Yeah, if yeah. you can genuinely convince a woman's body that she's sleeping with a bunch of different people through <laughs> this sort of role play, you mm. might be actually triggering the same biological change that happens with her actually sleeping with a lot of people. Would you like to know more? It requires some major mental caliber, which only... Only men have. Simona's pointing out that some of our audience doesn't like when we're on the wrong side. <laughs> I see the comments. I hear you people. And I made sure that we... This, this that is the problem. problem with attracting a disproportionately autistic audience. <laughs> is, is they get annoyed when we're on the wrong side. Well, you know what? They're right to be annoyed. They but I want to talk about a concept that we have developed since writing the Pragmatist Guide to Sexuality. So mm. of all of our theories of human sexuality, this is actually not in the book. And we haven't done a test on this yet. Yeah. When I am done with important projects I'm working on now, I may one day run a test on it. Or when we have Ayla next on, because we, we're booking that now, I may try to compel her to include this in one of her future studies. But it is a concept that I think is really worth discussing on the channel in detail in sort of a dedicated episode as the, what do we call it? The dual sexual strategy hypothesis. Okay, which yeah, is that's a good word for it. To say that humans can have a multiple sexual strategies pre-programmed into them that exist alongside each other. So one iteration of this that we do argue for in the Pragmatist Guide to Sexuality is how this works in women. So in women, we argue that when a woman goes out there and sleeps with a ton of people, her body undergoes something called a polymorphic change. So polymorphic changes happen in animals. The quintessential example of this is the grasshopper changing into a locust. If you so in nature, this happens when it's when it gets over a certain population density, but it can be simulated in a lab by rubbing its hind leg with a Q-tip, and it leads to a behavioral change. It starts this swarming behavior. It also changes its color, shape, and size. Uh, so pretty big change. But in primates, we see this in baboons. Depending on like the resources that baboons have versus the troop size, they will change their social structure. So I think it's like in in resource dense areas it, it, versus resource scarce areas. They switch between larger social groups that are matriarchal versus smaller social groups that are patriarchal or some inverse of that. But it's a pretty significant change in how they structure themselves. Well, in humans, human females specifically, what we argue in the book, and I believe pretty strongly, is that the more a human woman sleeps around, 
the lower, like there were some studies done on this, the lower uh, amounts of oxytocin she will produce with every first time new sexual partner, meaning that she is less likely to have an automatic bond to that sexual partner, which is very useful in a monogamous society, meaning that they basically automatically fall in love with the first person they have sex with to, to some small extent. And then to a smaller, you know, the second person, the third person, but once they're on like person five, this effect no longer happens at all. And this can have a lot of problems in the dating market when women expect men that they are sleeping with like on guy 10 to ever be able to recapture the spark they had with their first few romantic partners which is often just impossible with women Uh, not always i mean obviously you know most men are born being attracted to the female body shape but some men are born being attracted to the male body shape you know within women some women don't have this effect happen to them Uh, but i think it happens with the majority of women um and this is actually a very useful thing from a biological context so it meant that if you were a woman and you were in a a monogamous culture, you would be optimized for the monogamous lifestyle. If you were in a culture where you were being passed around, i.e. your village had been raided or you were a ex-slave of some sort, then you would be biologically optimized for that circumstance. However, this is a trend I've noticed that we didn't mention in the book with the dual female hypothesis. I have noticed that women who sleep around more seem to be more in to what I would call the category of arousal patterns that I call violent submission. Hmm. This is things like choking, spanking, degradation, stuff like that. Ayla Um, must have data on this because I think she tracks body count plus, of course, things that turn people on. Yeah, so this is something that we could look at to see if there's a correlation there, but I'm fairly certain you're going to end up finding a correlation there with Mm. the more partners a woman is sleeping with, the more they are turned on because they are beginning to be optimized like biologically for being a slave. Uh, That's what they think they are. They think they are an ex-slave that is being passed around some group that has raided and captured her village. This is something that happened very, very frequently in a historical context. So frequently that in, if you read the Pragmatist Guide to Sexuality, we talk about all the places you see this in behavioral patterns. So you can see it's pretty deeply carved into our DNA. But Simone, do you want to speak to this at all? No, well, this is all stuff we've talked about before. So I'm more interested in hearing you go over the male side of this, which is not in the Pragmatist Guide to Sexuality, in which you have come up with. Well, no, something we haven't talked about before is the hypothesis that women who sleep around more are going to be more turned on by a violent degradation. I don't don't predict that with the same confidence that you do. Okay, next hypothesis. Is I was thinking, like if evolution was going to select for something, there are two major sexual events or strategies that a male can undertake. And it's very important to understand that males can undertake both simultaneously. And historically, the successful males almost always undertook both simultaneously. Okay, so a lot of people see like, okay, so there's two different strategies. You as a guy can go out and do a bunch of graping as a warrior, like going out and and conquering areas, go a Viking in a historic context or in Rome, like go out with legions, right? And end up impregnating a bunch of people within the areas that you conquer. And that can lead to, you know, famously Genghis Khan, right? Like tons and tons and tons and tons of offspring. But then the other strategy and the the often more default, like it's almost sort of like a overlapping K and R selecting strategy. Mm-hmm. K versus R selecting is, are you investing a lot of time in your offspring? Or are you investing little time in your offspring? Well, the same legionary may have a wife back at home. 
You know, think about yeah, the movie totally. Gladiator or whatever, right? Like he would still have his plot back at home where he had eight kids on the farm and he would be working to help that family. Well, the fact that these two sexual strategies in men can overlap was in the same successful male. And this is true, like going a Viking. Like if I'm going a Viking and I'm out there and I have an impulse which causes me to impregnate people when I am raiding a village in Northern England, right? I would need a completely different set of impulses to ensure that I both find a, a high quality partner for who is my stable partner, who's keeping my farm running, who's providing me with food when I get back from a Viking that is taking care of the kids that are going to inherit my family name and everything like that, right? You have two strategies here that can overlap and both be successful within the same individual. That and makes what a lot of sense means is that there was likely a push for both strategies to develop within men simultaneously. Yeah. And this leads to my hypothesis that men have your average man, obviously, you know, as I said, some men are gay. So there's all sorts of like a little weird ways a guy can be programmed. Maybe a guy only has one of these appear in him, but I think that the average man has a raider sexuality and a, homesteader sexuality mm. and and so the things that turn them on most when they do with their long-term partner may be actually entirely divorced from the things that turn them on most when what would activate our raider sexuality most within the modern world would be pornography these are women that you have no emotional connection to you see as entirely disposable and it would explain why in pornography you see such a violent slash hardcore pornography appearing mm. because that pornography is is always or, or pornography more generally is always appealing to the raider side of a male sexuality interesting now this can cause a lot of problems if a man when he is young and is not sexually successful because he he doesn't get any you know long-term partners he doesn't get any women who he's sleeping with that he respects and a part of his brain sees as homesteader sexuality so when he's learning what his sexuality is he begins to think that his sexuality is only comprised of the type of pornography that he's consuming and this leads to men beginning to personally identify and build into their personal narrative of who they are as a person this violent sexual raider personality instead of what they actually are, which is a bifurcation of two sexual personalities with one sexual personality actually being, actually being much more optimized for like the good stay at home wife that they should be looking for. So, so men are basically like arbitrarily limiting themselves because they see that the thing X turns them on and they're totally not realizing that thing Y can also be like a major source of satisfaction for them but because it's not really in the material that they consume freely and easily online they just assume that that's not for them or they don't even know that it's an option yeah wow that's yeah i mean it's a lot harder to market that kind of fantasy to men i mean it's it's certainly not like immediately satisfying right it's a slow burn it's a, it's a different home. Yeah, but I think a lot of men who, when they're younger, find themselves turned on by raider sexuality type stuff mm -hmm. might be surprised how gross that stuff would feel doing with their long-term partner. 
No, it is. It is interesting because I think that they just assume, oh, this is all stuff I would always enjoy doing. And and then they get it. Well, and so men can simulate Raider sexuality with long term partners through scene changes. And this is an interesting thing that you see within BDSM and stuff like that. Hmm. So what's happening there is they are learning to think of their partner as somebody disposable within the context of a micro scene that disconnects them from who they are. Uh, so so like, you're no longer my wife. You're now this victim and I'm... You well, know. you're now like a nurse. You're now a teacher, you know, whatever. But mm. that would actually be a, an authority mindset. So that's actually the inverse of what I'm talking about here. But this is role play. Like we are role playing a scenario in which you aren't who you are and I am not who I am right. so that we can both carry out something that masturbates this part of our sexuality that is not being fully masturbated within the normal sort of sexual relationship I would have with somebody I know that I'm married to. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because like and, no, no man would really want to see violent and bad things happen to his wife or like, you know, a, a coercive scenario take place. I mean, unless he's yeah, but like, but most husbands would be like, no, not my wife, but they may still be turned on by that scenario. So they would yeah, need to so like disassociate relationship they're like how do i simulate both the women who historically i would have been pillaging their village and also simulate the loving relationship i have at home well let's do it with scene changes set changes and pretend because humans can pretend right yeah, um, yeah, yeah and they can trigger different aspects of their personality by appearing in very different one like costumes using different words like this is something that you often you know we talk about humans having different parts of their personality overlaid on each other that are brought out like when i'm at work one aspect of my personality is out when i'm at home one aspect of my personality is out and when people go back to their families i think they often find a more juvenile aspect of their personality is drawn out even if they don't intend for it to be because it's it, it, the, the the scene and the context and the people they're around reactivates this this earlier optimization that they had in life well i think within sexuality we have different ones as well and that they can be activated by very specific contexts. the problem is is that when people begin to internalize and this is something we constantly emphasize within the Pragmatist Guide to Sexuality, and it's really important to note, is that the things that arbitrarily turn you on are not who you are. Like, mm -hmm. they are not a reflection of your personality or anything like that. They are or random. Or what you want are. to have happen or what you endorse. Yeah, anything. Yeah. A woman who gets turned on by, you know. The, coercive sort of, sex. Yeah, coercive sex. That doesn't mean that she wants uh, surprise sex, right? <laughs> so there, there is a difference between something turning you on and you wanting it in the real world. There's mm -hmm. also a difference between something randomly turning you on and it being an aspect of your identity. Now, mm -hmm. I know that this is a horrifying and offensive thing for me to say within this world of alphabet soup identities, right? That just because something turns you on doesn't mean you need to incorporate it into your identity or you need to act on it. But I think that actually the rise of the alphabet soup mentality has led to many men who may not agree, like, like, like they are otherwise normal straight men, to begin to accidentally incorporate a lot of this raider sexuality into their personality because they're not getting laid when they're developing their sexual identity and so they're seeing all women in this way mm -hmm. oh by the way a clip i really wanted to use about the alphabet soup group because i i 
you know, going extinct because they're not going to be a long-term group. Like the populations that are really, really accepting of them have incredibly low fertility rates. Mr. Marsh, what exactly are you trying to accomplish? We have to take matters into our own hands. We're trying to turn everyone gay so that there are no future humans. Present-day America, number one! And uh, it reminds me, because I'm like, that's basically what many of the antinatalists are doing, is a, is a big gay orgy to prevent humanity, or at least their sect of humanity from existing in the future. And, and that is historically also why many cultures shame these sorts of relationships is it's not that these relationships are intrinsically immoral. And I believe very strongly that like gay relationships are not intrinsically immoral, but I also believe that groups that ex are accepting of them, but have lower fertility rates and thus get outcompeted by groups that are not. And that is why pretty much wherever you go, if you're looking at a successful, like long lived widespread cultural group, it's going to have some undertone of homophobia because those iterations of cultures outcompete other iterations of cultures intergenerationally. And, and only within our debauched modern context, do you see anything else? But I mean, equally um, debauched is succumbing to or identifying with this raider sexuality. Just because something turns you on doesn't mean you need to incorporate it into your identity. It's and, a good and, thing. Like you have yeah, to think about your morals and your values and what you want for society and yourself and others. And then you need to think about what turns you on and, and maybe <laughs> maybe parse those out. Well, I know. I mean, some men they may think or women may have such a strong desire to exercise this aspect of their sexuality that was hard-coded in both. It makes sense to do both within a relationship, to have your BDSM play and your regular sexual relationship or vanilla sexual relationship. That may make sense to overlap, to lower incidence of marital dissatisfaction, which might lower the chance of your wife cheating on you with somebody outside of your relationship because you are taking on both roles in this artificial context for them. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a really interesting phenomenon that that may be a successful way to structure things for some communities. Uh, why I don't think that that works. Why, why do you think I don't think that that'll work long-term? Because it's an unsustainable power dynamic? No, because I don't see it in any long-lived cultural group in the world. Hmm. I am aware of no long-lived religious tradition or long-lived cultural tradition that has a bifurcation of how they treat their partners. And i.e. we have both the, the homestead relationship and the raider relationship. And the reason I think that you don't see this is because I think that once you begin to treat women in this raider fashion, they are likely going to have the same biological reaction that they have from being passed around between a ton of guys. Mm, I okay, so they'll start devaluing the relationship as well. They'll biologically begin to transform. Yeah, if yeah. you can genuinely convince a woman's body that she's sleeping with a bunch of different people through <laughs> this sort of role play, you mm. might be actually triggering the same biological change that happens with her actually sleeping with a lot of people. It could be. Yeah, I mean, people get into like really into character, like totally. Yeah. I, I, wow. I wonder if it could, yeah, trigger the sort of hormonal processes that. So that's why I suspect we don't see this in long-lived cultural groups. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense within a modern relationship. If you are with a woman who has not, who has, sorry, if you're with a woman who has slept around a lot, this might be the only way to maintain her happily within a long-term monogamous relationship. Oh. Because she has already undergone this polymorphic transformation, and I don't know if there's a way to transform women back well, once they've undergone Okay, this. but here's the thing, and I think this is important to note, is that relationships are not just sex. Like, True. There's a lot more that's going on. There's, there's economic burden sharing. There's building households. There's raising kids. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people get married, especially when they're more mature. And of course, there are many exceptions here. Independent of sex, because they want to do specific things like it. And there are many probably totally sexless marriages out there where couples have just come together because they knew that that configuration would help them achieve their lifestyle goals. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think we largely as a society right now overvalue sex within marriages. And the reason we overvalue sex within marriages is because when we are thinking about marriage partners within our existing uh, socio-technological framework, uh, people vet marriage partners through casual sex. Um, and so your quality as a marriage partner is in part seen as your value is in sexual marketplaces. And so people then confuse that as being a core aspect of a marriage mm-hmm. when in reality, I, and I, and I think, I, you know, we had this video on how girl defined ruined a generation of men. This is a takeoff on the how Scott Pilgrim ruined a generation of men. BBD and ecstasy conceited with low self-esteem. She's a teenage dream if you hate yourself. The Mona flowers and fell so empowered by a movie made in Hollywood. It's sad to think she's someone's daughter, like a lamb to the slaughter. In that they convinced conservatives that the point of marriage was sex but that the way you got the very best sex and the very goodest of good sex (laughs) were through abstinence until marriage when that missed the point abstinence until marriage was a value because sex is just not that important at all before a marriage or after a marriage in terms of our own kids and you can watch our video on how we would you know teach our kids about sexuality i i do think that sex can be used as a tool within a modern context to you know get followers and help and stuff like that i mean who knows how i would have done in college without all the women who helped me with my homework and studying that were primarily doing that because i was having sex with them like there 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 are men and women who use sex as a resource to reach certain goals that they have it's just better if our kids grow up understanding the costs and the benefits of that now fortunately with men maybe at least for me fortunately and now or not always because you know you could accidentally get a woman pregnant or something like that but the costs at least at a long-term psychological level seem to be lower than the costs to women a really interesting study i was looking at recently was looking at and I'll put the statistics on screen here, how many sexual partners a woman had had before she got married and the likelihood that the marriage would end a divorce. And a woman who hadn't had any sexual partners, there was only a 20% chance it would end in divorce. And a woman who had had, I think, over 15 sexual partners or over 12 sexual partners, there was only a 20% chance the marriage would stay. Stick, and this is a huge difference. This is a huge difference. I think most women, like when I think about Ayla's live Twitter polls, so like you know, we actually had the opportunity to see people sort themselves by number of sexual partners. It seemed like most women in Ayla's live Twitter polls sorted themselves into the three to eight range. So, 
you know. Yeah. Well, so in the oxytocin studies, that would be pretty much already near the floor of oxytocin you get from new partners. That seems to happen after three. So mm-hmm. once you've done three partners, you're pretty much spent on the oxytocin category, but you would still see a decline in the probability that a marriage continues. And I should note these oxytocin studies. I remember very clearly going over them. I remember them being controversial. Like it was talked about them being controversial, but they were there and I went over them. Now, if you look for them online, you won't find them anywhere. Isn't and what's crazy? funny is all of the old sex researchers remember them. You know, when we're talking with uh, Diana Fleischman, she remembers these studies existing. You can't find them anywhere anymore. I do not know what happened to them. I think even Aleb will remember them existing at some point. Just gone now, scrubbed from the internet. Which I think shows the power of the 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 leftist distortion field when something doesn't agree with their narrative or leads to unpleasant implications, it must be destroyed. Which to me is interesting in that it shows that this war that we have is a war of truth and integrity and fighting for what is real and fighting for this society-wide distortion field that is meant to protect the illusion that everyone can live in this this happy world. In fact, it, it reminds me a lot of this book I read growing up called The Giver. I don't know if you read that one where basically they'd even removed colors from society and they'd removed everything. So you took a drug that made it so you didn't feel emotions. You didn't see colors. You didn't anything like that. Cause all of that stuff could lead to potential discomfort in some individuals and the goal <laughs> of society is to remove all potential discomfort. And, and we are beginning to see that this expanding distortion field, but fortunately we're also seeing them be incredibly low fertility. And so they really can only survive by taking children from nearby healthy demographic groups. So, you know, and then people are like, well, why is all this sex? Why, why do you look so hard at sex like why is it so important to you to understand right sexuality right now is one of the core ways that the mind virus is utilizing to peel kids out from your healthy demographic groups if you ignore human sexual diversity or real human sexuality then you put your group at risk of having kids peeled out of it. If you do stupid things like banning pornography within a modern context, like of course pornography was a good idea to ban in a historic context when you know people the first person they married what the first person they had sex with was who they married and porn just lowered the amount of sex they were having with their partner, right? Like yeah, of course that made sense. But if you look within a modern context, there's pretty much a direct correlation geographically with how religious, i.e. how banned porn is in an area and how much porn is consumed. Banning porn has the exact opposite effect at a cultural level that you would expect, which means we need to understand human sexuality to learn how we can adapt our cultures to better prevent sexuality as being a wedge that the left can use or the, the, the mind virus can use to take our children from us. And I think being sexually accepting while also being sexually honest, the cool thing about what the left has done is they've created such a distortion field. It's really clear when you talk to people about how human sexuality actually works, and you look at our book, like The Pragmatist Guide to Sexuality, which would be very offensive from a leftist perspective, they are getting a truer understanding of sexuality than the left is selling. Because the left, as we talk about in the beginning of that book, it has to sell this iteration of sexuality where gayness is like a meaningful sexual subtype. Right. And we point out uh, gayness probably doesn't really meaningfully exist. It's better to think of what specific genital configurations humans are most attracted to, uh, because we point out that it's actually pretty common for straight men to be repulsed by something like vagina. It's actually pretty common for men to be attracted to like a female body shape 
like secondary sex characteristics, but male primary sex characteristics, which in, within the online sphere is known as like Fuda. It's it's within women you see similar sort of mismatch between like primary and secondary sex characteristics, first attraction, to the extent where uh, categorizing people into this like holistically, I am attracted to the opposite same category is really only useful in a macro behavioral pattern perspective. Mm -hmm. I.e., who are they dating? Which it, it is well, useful almost even more relevant from a cultural standpoint, really. Yeah, they're groups that built an identity because they were communicated from society for yeah. a similar rule violation. But this led for something like gay people to be in the same community as trans people, when in reality, they have almost nothing in common in that they, other than that they were both isolated from mainstream society for violating sexual norms or gender norms. And it really makes no sense for these two communities to be allies at all, other than that for a while their goals overlapped, which I, I do not think that they do anymore. And I, I guess allied in, you know, oppression or minority status. Well, no, they were allied in how they were separated from society, which led to yeah. them, any, any uh, group that is separated from society in any way is going to begin to develop new cultural norms. When those cultural norms begin to develop an inter-community identity, and so they begin to develop a culture around the reason they were excommunicated from society, which then meant the reason that they were excommunicated from society ended up becoming like their highest order of identity, but it, it didn't exist in a meaningful, like when you actually look at the data, it's actually like far more nuanced than that. Like the Kinsey scale is completely garbage. Read the Pragmatist Guide to Sexuality or see our video on this. Like it, it, that is not the way human sexuality works at all. But, and again, we're not saying that there aren't a huge portion of men who are also attracted to men or women who are also attracted to women. I would say that within bisexual populations when you actually look at the data like on dating platforms they actually like will overwhelmingly prefer to date just one gender and this may be a very strong preference you're seeing within the bisexual population or it may mean that a lot of the attacks on the bisexual population are actually accurate but typically for example within men only 20 percent of bisexuals actually like do that whereas in women it's something like 35 percent. so it's actually a meaningful i was actually surprised within women so many bisexual women are actually really just only dating one gender or the other gender which you can see but apparently they switch up as well which men don't do as much like they're really persistent on which their preferable gender is although you do see within the bisexual community interesting a lot of them leaving around the age where they might be getting scared that they're not going to be able to have kids um mm -hmm. So, so you have all that, but this has led to this leftist distortion field around how they're able to do sexual research, which means that you and me and, and, and within things like the pragmatist guide to sexuality, we are able to have discussions that are truer and obviously truer to young people than the discussions that are happening in the left. And when they see that, that completely prevents the left from being able to use sexuality as a wedge to take them out of our cultural groups. But this requires actually engaging with sexuality and understanding why we had some of these historic practices like the denigration of porn. Asking why we would study this stuff so diligently or spend so much time researching it is like asking a prisoner why they would spend so much time researching the bars of their cage. If we are trapped in these fleshy prisons that enforce emotions and desires upon us we did not ask for, it is in part our duty to study and understand them so that we can better escape them and better prevent them from controlling and influencing our actions. If you are trapped in a room with a wild, dangerous animal, the goal of any righteous individual is to ensure that this wild animal 
this lower part of themselves doesn't become the core focus of their lives and identity, but there are multiple paths towards achieving that. For example, you can spend every waking moment attempting to tame and control the beast, or you can learn to feed it just enough to keep it from bothering you. And through better understanding the beast, we can better understand how to deprioritize it in terms of our daily thoughts and actions. Now that the left, you know, tracer butt scandal, Gamergate, has seeded male sexuality, we are insane for not picking that up. They said anything that turns on males is intrinsically immoral, basically. And now we can go scoop up the, the remains of that, which is a large part of the, the, the male community, right? Because they don't like being denigrated for what turns them on and incorporate that with more traditional frameworks in a way that these two things can work together. And they can work together, but they work together because it is true that going out and sleeping with a lot of people is probably not in your best interest when you look at the data. And, and that's, that's the great thing about all of this is that because what we're fighting for is truth, truth is always on our side. Convenient. Convenient. <laughs> Very convenient. Well, no, I mean, if, if they only were fighting with integrity and for actually protecting people, then truth would be on their side as well, but they're not. Yeah, but it's I mean, not. it also gives us flexibility that other groups don't have, which is to say, if we get better evidence, we get to just say, oh, Great. sorry, we were wrong. And, and then pursue what we understand to be right, given the evidence. So I think the greatest thing about the fighting for truth stance is that it's okay to be wrong. It's actually really important to learn when you're wrong so that you can be less wrong and more right going forward. And that no matter how you know imperfect our knowledge is, we can always try to do a little bit better and get closer to the truth, whereas other groups are just kind of stuck with their stances. But I'm really really glad you shared this theory with me. I, I do, I don't know, I, I wonder like how societies could change culturally in a way that would prepare men to understand this bifurcation, because there's a lot of things like we discussed in another conversation recently, how like both men and women really aren't really taught to bring anything to the table. So is it no wonder that even with all these different government incentives and programs, men and women are be, still just completely disinterested in getting married. And it's easy to, you know, sort of through propaganda, education, et cetera, explain again and again, you, here's what you can bring to the table. He, always keep in mind what you need to bring to the table. But how would you train people around this? How would you prepare young men around this? Just make them aware of this truth. The, the thing that turns them on with porn is not necessarily what that's going to turn them on with a long-term partner. Mm, and that they kind of a incorporate... thing. You shouldn't incorporate those things into your identity. And also keep in mind that the things that seduce women in bars are not the things that seduce the good long-term partner that you want to be married to for the rest of your life. These are two different sexual optimization functions. And if you waste a bunch of time optimizing around the wrong one, you will get divorce rate. Hmm. All right. Good. Solid advice. I love you, Malcolm. I love you too, Simone. You're an amazing woman. And I am desperately lucky that I married somebody so clear headed and intelligent and that helps me see the world more clearly every day. And so thank you for that. Hopefully more so when I don't have a fever anymore. <laughs> I love you though. Thanks for taking care of me. You're the best.